with Neural Retraining Podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Lowry, founder of Twin Cities Neural Retraining and a certified MAP method practitioner, specializing in anxiety, sensitivities, and chronic health conditions. In episode 62, I'm going to talk about why your relationship with illness can actually be hindering your recovery. This is a concept that is part of my new program, MAP for Self-Healing. I call it changing your relationship to illness. And although the stress of chronic symptoms and health issues will be the subject of this podcast episode, the same principle applies to any difficulties that you face. In this episode, I will talk about my insights from working with clients as well as the work of others, including Byron Katie and Anita Morjani. We'll discuss how your stance toward illness, either fighting it, Fleeing in fear or withdrawing and freezing may be triggering the stress response and how advanced neural retraining may be helpful. As always, we must disclaim that the information we share in the podcast is for educational purposes only. As MAP method practitioners, we do not diagnose or treat disease. Instead, we work with the person and the personality to optimize health. Are you ready to begin? Okay, let's get started. So in working with clients, I have seen that people have a lot of fear and resistance when it comes to facing chronic symptoms, chronic health conditions, or chronic illness. And this is an area where we can make great improvements. When I work with clients, you may have heard me say this before, I work with them on a conscious and a subconscious level. The advanced neural retraining technique that I use called the MAP method is a subconscious technique. It works directly with the subconscious mind. But it's also important, I feel, to work with the conscious mind because though we can clear things in the subconscious mind, we can make changes on a subconscious level. If the conscious mind is not aware of the patterns that are negative, then the conscious mind will just recreate that. So I like to always like to start by talking about the autonomic nervous system, right? This is the little lesson that I probably give the most. People may remember from high school biology is that as human beings, we are blessed with a nervous system that gives us the ability to run the body in two different modes. The first mode is the rest, digest, and heal mode. This, as you can tell from the name, this mode of the autonomic nervous system is your friend if you are trying to recover from chronic symptoms or a chronic health condition. 
The other mode is fight, flight, or freeze. This is also known as the sympathetic mode of the autonomic nervous system. In the stress response, or when you are in the fight, flight, freeze response, every system of the body is gearing up to run away from an emergency. This is a very old, hardwired system. And we, as human beings, have had this system on board, part of our operating system, for millennia. Our lives have changed greatly. But this system is still wired for a lifestyle that we haven't seen since we were living in caves where emergencies were short-lived. Nowadays, with our very highly developed frontal cortexes, emergencies can be conjured in the mind through the simple act of thinking. Every worry thought that we have can incite the stress response. For some of us, the threshold, you know, for going into a stress response is very low. Dr. Lisa Rankin talks about how the average person has 50 to 100 stress responses a day. For the person with chronic illness, this could be hundreds of stress responses. Why? Because your limbic brain, your danger-sensing part of your brain is assessing everything going on outside of you and everything going on internally as well to figure out if we are facing an emergency. And when we have worried, fighting, when we are fighting, when we are fearful, when we are worried, when we are perseverating over something, when we are conflicted, all of these things can read as stress, as the sign of a potential threat. And so all of these things can tip us into a stress response. For the person with chronic illness, for the person who's trying to recover, we can't afford this. We need to be in the parasympathetic response as much of the time as possible, the rest, digest, and heal response. Only in the parasympathetic response is the body able to marshal all of its resources for the restorative functions of the body, basically everything that you need to live, everything that you need to be in, optimal health. So when you think about your illness, your symptoms, whatever health challenge you are facing in your life right now, I want you to take a moment here and just review the typical thoughts that come up for you around this in a given day. 
as I said, most people's response to adversity, including chronic illness, is fear and resistance. They think, I don't want this. Why do I have this? How do I fix this? How do I make this go away, right? Those are fighting thoughts. They think, why me? What have I done to deserve this? What if this is a sign of something much worse? Those are fear thoughts. Some people feel entrapped. They feel stuck. They feel like they've fallen into a hole and they can't get out, right? Again, fear thoughts and a kind of victim mentality. Others go into a kind of freeze state where they withdraw or they shut down. Sometimes people perseverate on some decision they made in the past. Why did I ever go on that trip? Why did I ever agree to take that course of antibiotics? Why was I in the wrong place at the wrong time and had that accident? And some part of their subconscious mind is reviewing and reviewing this turning point, right? Whatever it is that we may blame for bringing on the chronic illness or for the symptoms getting worse. Maybe it was a stress brought on by trying to do too much. We think, why did I stay in the marriage that long? Why, why did I stick it out in that job for so long? There's an element of self-blame to these thoughts as well. Some people get lost in the uh, loneliness, the isolation of their condition. Feeling that they have to bear the burden alone. That they're all alone in figuring this out. Fear around people not believing them not being able to get the help that they need. Trying and trying so many things and never really finding the relief that they are looking for. And the longer this goes on and the more things that they try and that fail, the desperation, the frustration, the helplessness, the powerlessness that goes along with that feeds the stress response even more. And so I hope you can see how this pattern of thinking, this perspective, this mindset, the more it is reinforced, it becomes like a negative thought spiral. The more it is reinforced with our thoughts, our fears, our resistance, our frustration, the more and the faster this negative thought spiral spins, taking us deeper and farther into the stress response and inhibiting our recovery. 
for my clients that have any history of OCD, that's just another layer that can make that negative thought spiral into a, a negative thought tornado, right? It just spins faster. It's just more entrenched because of those patterns of thinking, the obsessive compulsive patterns. If this sounds like you, or if you are anywhere on this continuum, I want you to know that you can change your relationship to illness. You can turn your thoughts around, your perspective to support recovery. What does that look like, you may be wondering. And there are a few guiding lights out there. Not a lot, you know. This really isn't discussed or described much, and that's why I felt like it was time for someone to talk about this. One guiding light is Anita Morjani. She wrote a book called Dying to Be Me. She talks about her bout with cancer and how she nearly died. But then she had a near-death experience and recovered. Now she teaches people what she learned from that near-death experience about how we are meant to live, how we are meant to regard all challenges as a gift, how we are meant to live fearlessly. If you haven't heard of her, you might look up her book or her TED Talk on YouTube. There's also Gerald Jampolsky, MD, a psychiatrist who runs the Attitudinal Healing Centers. Um, they started out in California, and now they are, I think there are multiple centers around the country and the world. These are for children with fatal illnesses. And the centers are, as you can tell by the name, they are meant to work with these children and their parents to help them improve their attitude, you know, their, their perspective on what they are undergoing. He's written several books and one is called Love is Letting Go of Fear. That's probably his best known work. I also want to mention the new book by Frank Bruni. You may know Frank Bruni as a journalist for the New York Times. He was that for almost three decades. Also the author of several best-selling books. In his most recent book, The Beauty of Dusk, he describes his diagnosis of vision loss from a small stroke in one eye. And as he consults with many physicians, he's told that he has a chance of the same thing happening to the other eye. And in grappling with the prospect of losing his vision, he seeks out others 
who have been down the same path and finds inspiration in meeting them. Chief among these is someone he met socially named Juan Jose. And I'd like to read you some excerpts from this book by Frank Bruni, The Beauty of Dusk, so that you can understand why Frank Bruni found him so inspirational, such a model for how to face his future. This is from Chapter 5. I met and got to know Juan Jose, not because he's blind, but because he's a close friend of two close friends of mine, Joel and Nicole. Not long after my stroke, we all had dinner together in a restaurant on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Juan Jose, a career diplomat from Mexico City, who was then Mexico's permanent representative to the United Nations, came with his romantic partner, Marie Angela, an Italian diplomat who also worked at the UN. They're a great-looking, globe-trotting, multilingual couple, and that's probably what most people's first and most lasting impression of them is. But what intrigued me that night were the whispered directions that he was getting from Nicole. Asparagus at two o'clock, she would say, a reference that had nothing to do with the hour. Beef at six o'clock. This was information that recast the plate in front of him as a giant timepiece. Nicole was telling him where to steer his fork to connect with the various components of his meal. That was pretty much the only evidence that he couldn't see. That and the fact that when he and Marie Angela arrived, they maintained physical contact for most of their approach to the table, a gesture that was one part display of affection, one part navigational assistance. When you spoke with Juan Jose, he looked you straight in the eye and held your gaze. When someone else spoke, his head turned that way as quickly and confidently as anyone else's. Once he'd figured out, via those verbal cues and the subtle movements of his fingers, where everything in front of him was, he didn't fumble for objects or seek additional help. Many months later, I was at a dinner party with him and about 12 other people, including my friend Alessandra. When she and I discussed him afterward and I referred offhandedly to his blindness, she had no idea what I was talking about. She had sat mere feet from him for about four hours and never picked up on it. That's not because he hid his disability. It's because he had adapted to it so fluidly and so fluently and didn't go out of his way to mention it. But when I asked him how he lost his sight, how he adjusted to that, and how it affected him now, he answered me in great detail. He's proud of his route from there to here. That's a major reason that he traveled it so successfully. He regarded it not as a burden, but as a distinction. He grew up in the 60s and 70s in an upper-middle-class neighborhood of Mexico City to parents who provided well for him and his siblings. And he was unremarkable, or at least that's how he remembers it. He was bad at baseball, bad at basketball. Soccer flummoxed him. His leg-eye coordination didn't match his peers, and if he were playing late in the day as the light faded, he would lose track of the ball and even bump into people. He didn't do particularly well in his schoolwork. At times, he recalled, I thought I was officially stupid. His eyesight was never good. 
He wore glasses from an early age, but in his late teens, as his vision became almost useless in semi-darkness and darkness, his eye doctor realized that Juan Jose didn't have anything as run-of-the-mill as nearsightedness or farsightedness or astigmatism. The guy started to become excited, Juan told me. Excited. He was a small neighborhood doctor. He went and picked up a book and said, You have retinitis pigmentosa. I was his first case ever. He said, You are going to lose your sight. Just like that. By 40, you will be blind, more or less. My mother was collapsing. She was in shock. Me? I was not. It's funny, but I was experiencing some kind of fascination. If the doctor's manner was off-key, his conclusion was on target. Juan Jose indeed had retinitis pigmentosa, a rare retinal disorder that often asserts itself around the age that he was at the time, is more common among men than women, and routinely leads to blindness within 10 to 25 years. It didn't have a cure then, and still doesn't have a cure now. But his mother, desperate, toted him to specialist after specialist. She was ready to turn the world upside down, Juan Jose said. I was enjoying the ride, really enjoying the ride. It was awful to go to doctor after doctor, but it was fun to go to Columbia. It was an adventure. It was also an explanation. Of course he hadn't been an athletic god or a scholastic genius. He was putting in much more effort than his schoolmates did to see the words on a page or the ball in a field. Now he understood why, and now there was a novel dimension of his life that set him apart. He even thought to himself, I'm special. Maybe that was a form of denial, which gets a bad rap. Denial comes in handy up to a point. Maybe time has warped his memory. But the response he remembers having in the months and years following his diagnosis was consistent with his responses to blindness in the decades to come. He never freaked out, never gave up, never even brooded, as best I can tell. He had serious difficulties, physical and emotional, and was at times painfully aware of what he was missing out on. Although his diagnosis absolved him of the conviction that he lacked smarts, and in that fashion provided motivation to apply himself in college in Mexico and then in graduate school at Georgetown University, those studies required a real force of will. He wasn't blind yet, but he was on that path, and he had to use particular software and devices to get all of his reading done. He had to push himself. That was true, too, as he began his career with the Mexican Foreign Service in his mid-twenties and rose in the ranks. During that period, he did conceal his vision troubles, an exhausting charade that required a layer of energy on top of all the other layers. He didn't tell his boss about his looming blindness until he was around 30 and working in London, and he made the admission then only because he needed time off to go to Cuba for a sequence of experimental procedures, including an intricate surgery involving, as best he recalls, an implant and extensive stitching. When he woke from it, he said he was in agony. For days afterwards, he felt as if he'd had a beach's worth of sand in his eyes. And yet the surgery didn't work. By his mid-thirties, his vision was effectively gone. Blindness strained and eventually ended his marriage, in part because it introduced all sorts of logistical complications and changed the dynamics between him and his wife. 
It also filled him with worry about being a good father to their two little girls, Sophia and Paloma. He didn't want them to consider him frail and dependent or to be self-conscious about him. He told me, when Paloma was five years of age, one of her favorite jokes was when we both were walking on the street holding hands and she would say, careful of this step, when there was none. That's mean, I said playfully. We were talking, after all, about a five-year-old. No, Juan Jose corrected me. That's beautiful. Why beautiful, I asked. Because it meant that I had succeeded. Because she could be light about it, jocular? Yes, Juan Jose said, exactly. He said he knows what Sofia and Paloma look like as young women, and he knows, or feels he knows, what Marie Angela, whom he met long after he went blind, looks like as well. His world isn't a complete blur. He catches small patches of objects or faces, depending on how near they are and how much light is falling on them. He spots contours. They're like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that he can build over time in his brain. He does the same with places, especially if he's been somewhere before. He retrieves images from memory and grafts on the few details from the present that he can gather and assemble. But he described many more satisfactions than regrets, and he is convinced that he wouldn't have had his exciting diplomatic career and attained his altitude of success without the prospect of blindness and then blindness itself. I am completely grateful, he said, quickly adding that he knows, when he expresses that sentiment, that people think he has brainwashed himself. But going blind and then being blind steeled his will and concentrated his energy because he approached his vision impairment as a test that made him and his life much more interesting. That viewpoint was made possible in part by his parents' support, the safety net they provided, and his access to an excellent education. But it was still a mental discipline, a decision, and it was the path and precursor to a confidence that he feels certain he would not possess otherwise. He isn't just a high achiever. He is a high achiever who could so easily have been marginalized, including by himself. Additionally, he said, losing vision gave me skills, tools, a way of thinking, a brain that brought me here. For any person with a disability, from the moment you wake up until the moment you are back in bed, you are facing all kinds of challenges, all kinds of obstacles that you have to sort out. In New York, getting to my office, getting out of the car, going through the building, getting to the elevator, all the things that you do automatically without thinking require strategy and problem solving for me. And that's just a half hour in the morning. The rest of the day has many more half hours like that. His temperament, too, has been forged by not seeing. I became patient, he told me. I think patience is one of the biggest attributes I may have. In all my defects, patience is one of the good things because you have to become patient and you have to become resilient. Why? Because you will need to be with all kinds of little problems all the time or you may get into trouble. And you need to pause and think and be careful. Otherwise, he says, you walk through the wrong door, down the wrong hall, to the wrong departure gate. You stray into a physically dangerous place or space. The care that he takes to avoid that is a care that informs and improves the rest of his life. Blindness, he says, gets the credit. I never saw it as a burden, he said. I saw it as a characteristic. You might or might not be happy with how you look, 
You might wish to be taller or thinner, but you are what you are. To me, it was exactly that. Honestly, he told me, I have taken full advantage of not seeing. Now that is an example of someone whose natural attitude towards illness, so diametrically opposed to the fear and resistance that we are led to believe is normal by society. But perhaps you have heard of other examples like this. People who have said that their cancer, that their dire illness, that their accident, that their loss was the best thing that ever happened to them. It didn't feel that way maybe when they were going through it, but in hindsight, they can see how the challenge was a gift. Frank Bruni talks about the thought, why me, and turns that around. Why not me? Did anyone guarantee any of us a challenge-free life when we came into this world? Frank Bruni talks about our misperception that most people live challenge-free lives and how society and especially social media, create a false impression of what is normal. As he puts it, struggle is a more universal condition than comfort. Something to think about. So if this sounds intriguing to you, and you can see the need to maybe do some mindset changing of your own in relationship to your health or any other challenges that you are facing in your life. And if you can't imagine how to start to make this transition, consider working with your thoughts, right? As a first step, you could consider the work of Byron Katie who teaches a simple method of writing down our habitual negative thoughts and turning them around. I consider this a kind of analog version of the MAP method. Uh, her method is very much working with one thought at a time and exploring other possible thoughts that we could hold in its place that make us feel more peaceful, more relaxed, more calm, more accepting. And I think that even just doing that kind of exercise can be helpful to get us out of a, a kind of mental rut that we've been in. But with advanced neural retraining, and specifically the technique that I use, the MAP method, we can work on these kinds of habitual negative thoughts, these perspectives, these mindsets, uh, belief systems, identities, 
past experiences that created them, all kinds of things in order to help you to change your relationship to illness. So if you find that you need more than Byron Katie's exercises, then I do recommend thinking about a neural retraining method like the MAP method. Many of my clients find that MAP sessions are a powerful way to change their relationship to whatever they are experiencing through a set of sessions. We can neutralize the emotional intensity of past experiences like I was talking about. We can replace negative, repetitive thoughts with more supportive, empowering thoughts. We can change habitual responses and conditioned behaviors. Why? Because the subconscious mind is capable of making these changes. Oh, it may not happen in one session, but it is, it is possible. And beyond the emotional, mental, and behavioral benefits, clients often experience a lessening of their symptom intensity and frequency. And the process also supports the positive effect of any other therapies or modalities that they are doing. In other words, working with the MAP method in sessions is complementary to any other medical treatments, therapies, procedures, or modalities, including alternative medicine, that you may be pursuing. Why is that? Because when you are working against the mind, you're just increasing that hurdle to recovery. And so when we can work with the mind, when we can settle the mind, when we can make the mind a more peaceful, calm, accepting place around your reality, whatever reality you are facing, chronic illness, financial stress, relationship stress, etc., then whatever therapies you are utilizing will work better. The mind is powerful, particularly the subconscious mind. And for many of my clients, what they discover is that working with their mind is the missing piece of the puzzle that helps them turn their situation around. Well, I hope that this discussion has been helpful and I do thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for the Flourish with Neural Retraining podcast. Please listen again and remember to follow us and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Play, or Stitcher. Check out our free courses about the MAP method, how it works, and how we use it for mind-body healing at mapforhealth.us or schedule your introductory session at mindremapforhealth.com. Until the next time, be well and flourish. Content of this podcast 
Copyright 2023 by Twin Cities Neural Retraining. Music by Barbara Benn.